0: we're not talking about the Shabbos tonight, although Shabbos is um, ever-present even uh, when we have a conversation about Pesach, because of course you know that that when we speak about Shabbat, we always mention the exodus from Egypt. It's a recurring theme throughout the year, even when we... Even when we talk about Shabbat, we're not always... There's something called Shabbat Breshit and Shabbat... uh, There's the Shabbat of the seven days of the week and where we reference the creation of the world. It's curiously enough, when we make Kiddush on Friday night, we just went and talked about Kiddush, right, on Friday night. And we talked about... (coughs) We talked about um, the 70 words, right, the 35 words in in each of them. So we know that... um, this line is familiar to you, right? Right. Right. So we say um you know the melody. Da 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 dam da 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 dam da da dam Mitzray. What is that? Right, we found it. Right, we found it. We found it. What is that? How is Shabbat connected to to the Exodus from Egypt? I understand the first line, uh, right, uh, that it was Zechar the Maaseh It was a remembrance of the act of creation, where Shabbat is the weekly reminder of the renewal of, of the creation of the world, right? Something from nothing, or what it seems to be, the illusion of the creation of the world, um, from our perspective. But then all of a sudden it goes on and it says, Zeche mm-hmm. maasev it says, Zeche l'tziah mitzrayim, which is a remembrance of leaving mitzrayim. Mm-hmm. So how, what does Shabbat have to do with the exodus of Egypt? I have a
1: theory.
0: Okay, Rachel has a theory. It's
1: just a theory. I'm reading labor law. <clears throat> And apparently, if you
2: are a slave, mm-hmm.
1: you uh, have no right to a day of rest. You have no right to shabbos. And among the migrant workers in New York State, they have no right to shabbos. Mm-hmm. So if we hadn't gotten out of this right, we wouldn't have gotten the Ten Commandments. And it says, honor, honor the seventh day and keep it holy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's how they pill it. I don't know. It's just a I'm just saying.
0: Yeah, it's, not, it's a good theory. It's actually. Not only is it plausible, but it's the right answer. Wow. Yeah, I
1: think I better go home now,
2: David. Yeah, you're batting. You. That's good. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm
0: not giving that many more questions. Don't worry. <laughs> you're safe. you got four more. Yeah, at least three three <laughs> more. Max, Max, yeah, nice. come on.
2: Max, come on. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so so obviously Shabbat is a was a radical invention. It was a radical introduction of an idea. It it was transformative. It's still transformative, and not enough, quite clearly. Um, But uh, the notion that, that human beings, that part of what it is to be human, God teaches us part of what it is to be human by modeling a day of rest, and that we act, when we work seven days a week, when we're always working, in some way we're less than, we're trying to, to be even more than God. So here, uh, the slaves were, we were working every day, and then Shabbat came along, the exodus of Egypt came along and said that, that there's, no, there's, no, um, there's no one in, in, a, in Israeli culture, in Israel culture, not Israeli culture, but in the culture of the Bible... There isn't anyone that isn't uh, invited to a day of rest. That No, no human being can be so commodified, and so uh, sold, that they sell their freedom on that level. And so Shabbat comes every week, not just to remind us about creation, but to, to remind us of, of a cultural creation, which was Shabbat was. The world was created anew, um, for these group of slaves <laughs> to remind us that Shabbat is the ultimate equalizer. It should be the ultimate equalizer. We should try to work for a day to some degree where 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 no one works in, in Ramu on Shabbat, right? Even people who work in the church maybe shouldn't be working on Shabbat, maybe. Obviously it's up to them, for their prerogative, but it might not be our values, maybe.
1: Maybe that's why we stagger them. Could Friday, be Saturday, Sunday.
0: Yeah. No, I'm not talking about volunteers, by the way. No, I am. people work? Yeah. So anyway, so we're not talking about Shabbat tonight. We're talking about Pesach. So, but you see that they're connected. Everything's connected. So what are we going to say about Pesach? We have a week to prepare. And um, let's talk a little bit about the Kabbalah of this time of the year, and a little bit about the Kabbalah of the Seder itself, and some of the practices around the various ideas and, and objects around the Seder. So, um, at best, you'll, you'll, you'll be edified and you'll feel connected, and at, at, at least you'll have something fancy to say over at the Seder and and wow people and say, like, you know, wow, I didn't hear that before, okay? So, you have to begin with, the uh, Pesach always begins on the first day of the month of Nisan, and the month of Nisan, let's talk about that. So, the month of Nisan is the first month of the year... And it is, it is essentially a, a new year. So it's a, it's Rosh Hashanah. So we just had Rosh Hashanah. Which, it was Tuesday, last Monday night and Tuesday. It was Rosh Hashanah. It was the first day of the, of the Hebrew month of Nissan. So number of the the, it is the new year for what was it the new year of? It essentially is the new year, for the counting of months. Which has significance um, in ancient contract law, <laughs> right? So, if you wanted to sign a contract for your new apartment, you would write, if it was the second month, it w- and it was the, let's say, you wrote it to the to the year of the king. Let's say, let's say that's called Barack Obama King. So he's in his seventh year, right? Or no, his fifth year, fifth year of his of his. Of his rulership, and once the second day of Nisan came, he, his the year was up, and it became the second or th- it would be the sixth year or the seventh year. In other words, the demarcation line of a of a sovereign's rulership was given to the first day of the month of Nissan. It was called Rosh Hashanah Limlachim. It's the new. It's the new year for kings, and it had contractual. Uh, Ramifications. it so had to do with writing a star, different, uh, binding relationships within a given society that were dependent on using the king's rulership as a time frame. <clears throat> Everybody got that?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. It's not Rosh Hashanah for years, because Rosh Hashanah for years takes place in Tishrei. It only is Rosh Hashanah for the years of the king that are as stipulated in the in the contracts. Right? Does that make sense? Yep. Complicated. They had they had a number of different. It's
2: more like a civil, the fiscal
0: year. It would be a fiscal it's year. It's kind of having a fiscal year. In, in other words, a year, an arbitrarily chosen. It's not arbitrary, but it's it is a circle within a circle, mm-hmm. a year within a year with whatever when, it might where
2: be. Where do we learn that out that this is the contract date? That's
0: that's the Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah. An, uh-huh. It's the first Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah. Arba Rosh Hashanah, and then the Gemara goes on to explain how they got these four Rosh Hashanahs, but it's mm-hmm. a Rabbinic construction. It might parallel, it actually might be an accurate description of the way it was historically, but presuming that the rabbis right. were, were constructing okay. it from the as well. So there are three other ones. One you know, I said, which is Rosh Hashanah, as we call it, Rosh Hashanah, just Rosh Hashanah, which is uh, the seventh month of the year, Tishrei, and so on. Okay. There are two more. One of them is for trees, right? Mm-hmm. That's two Bishvat. Right? And there's Rosh Hashanah for for Behemoth and things like that. Okay. So the word Nisan itself comes from the from the Aramaic n- "nesh" means to lift up, like a like a flag, to be elevated, <clears throat> to be dignified. And in the Kabbalah, this this month, the first month, is not just auspicious because of its connection to kings, but for the rabbis that's a very mystical meaning. It's not Because we know what malchut means in this class, and malchut, which means kingship, has a a different meaning Kabbalistically than just sovereign Barack Obama's, right? In a Kabbalah class, when you hear the word melech, or king, melech, um, it has a a connotation, it has a specific resonance, it has a specific mystical meaning. So it's the new year for kings, we'll get to that in a second. So to be lifted up, to be dignified, it's the first month, and it is also, because it is the first month, it represents in Kabbalah the energy that is what's called or yashar, a straight light, light that is not a returning light, a light that is direct, a light that is clear, a light that moves from point A to point B. Point A in this meaning is God, and point B is earth, or terrestrial life, including human beings the cosmos, but the, the point of energy, move, the movement of energy on Rosh Hashanah of Nisan, meaning the, the equinox, the spring, is the energy of, um, of grace. It's the energy of grace, of rebirth, of the world anew. It's the energy, obviously, of the spring It's the energy of a gift, not a return gift. A gift. There is an expectation. Every gift cycle in Kabbalah it has the exp- needs to be a cycle, not just a gift line. It's a gift cycle. And so the expectation is, of course, that God gifts and we return the gift. But the energy is, without a doubt, moving from above to below. As the, that's the spatial metaphor used in Kabbalah. From above to below, from the divine to the human. It's from the parent to the child. Is also the metaphor. It's of the the energy of um, of of free a gift given freely. Okay. So on on Pesach, the, the tradition has it that the um, that. The Israelites in Egypt actually didn't deserve to be redeemed. That's the, that's the traditional way of reading this story. Even though if you read the Bible, you don't get that at all, right? <laughs> if you read the Bible, I, what do you mean they didn't... Re, re, what did they do? It's like they went down. Jacob went down. Uh, Joseph was already there. He brought his whole family to reunite with with Joseph. They were living in Egypt, and before you know it, you open the book of Exodus, the first chapter, and and all hell breaks loose. It's like you know they they went from being seventy people to being a multitude. There are six. There you know they become thousands and thousands of swarming insect-like slaves, right? And then and then they're crying out to God. Like there's nowhere in that story, if you read the Bible, you know even. If you if you read it well, there's no there's no sense of of that the Israelites did anything wrong. It's actually the fulfillment of the divine promise that was made to Abraham way back, way back in the book of Genesis, where Abraham before Isaac and Jacob were even on the scene, where Abraham is told by God in a prophecy that your children are going to go down to Egypt and they're going to be enslaved and they'll be there for 400 years. So you're reading the book of Exodus, you're thinking, okay, it's just a fate complete. It's exactly the way it worked. God prophesized and that's it. But in the rabbinic mind, the Israelites in the land of Egypt, at least in one thread, one trope, one way of reading the story, they had, they had basically hit rock bottom. I mean, talk about 12 steps. They were on the 49th level of impurity. According to the rabbis, there are 49 levels of impurity, and there are 49 levels of purity paralleling those 49 levels of impurity, and those 49 levels of purity are the days of between Passover and Shavuot the 49 days the 7 weeks and we'll and the Israelites will gradually right elevate themselves one step at a time from 49 levels below to 49 levels above and <clears throat> they were on a very low level and so for the rabbis when they read this story they read God's willingness to redeem them to redeem the Israelites as an act of incredible divine love. In other words, you don't deserve it, but I love you. And that becomes the frame in the Kabbalah of what is called awakening from above. Awakening from above. People have heard this many times, right? Awakening from above. An awakening from above... An awakening from above has moral and it's a a beautiful frame. It's a beautiful frame. Even if we can, to some degree, suspend our disbelief about whether God, that whole frame, whether God, we deserved it, we didn't deserve it, the, the notion of it is it's much broader than that. Every time your brain sends a signal to your foot and tells it to get out of the way of something or to move, that's an awakening from above. It's called downward causation. Information is given from a higher level of complexity to a lower level of complexity in a feedback loop that includes the lower level of complexity's own causative input in in a feedback loop. That's a feedback loop. Your foot steps on a nail and signals to your brain that's upward causation. And good companies like Google have a healthy... Downward causation and upward causation model where creativity and innovation that is quote unquote on the lower levels, right, just software programming, mm-hmm. let's say, is what is responsible for Google's incredible creativity. Like a, a bunch of guys, you know, chomping on HTML or, or just pushing stuff can actually create all kinds of amazing things that Google then puts out into the world. We have Google Docs, you don't have to actually have the software. In your computer, you can do it anywhere. You can log on and have a Google Doc. Right? That came from, like, a bunch of guys sitting in front of, you know, with some pizza. <clears throat> and uh, and uh, in between Facebook chatting, they came up with some brilliant ideas. And they made it all the way up to Sergey Brin and, and, and the rest of the chevra, because there's a much, a very flexible uh, downward and upward causi- causative loop. Right? They actually hear what's going on in the toes, in the brain and the brain is giving good direction to the toes. So this notion, in Kabbalah, of an awakening from above, an awakening from below, has theological frame, right? God as the brain, knowing that the foot was in danger, not waiting for the foot's information, and sending a Moses character as the messenger, kind of like the nerve impulse is Moses, dot,
2: <clears throat>
0: who mediates between the Moach, the mind... And uh, which is which is God, and then the feet, which are the people. Now, in the theological model, again, we didn't really deserve it. You could easily see this as a much like um, as a, as a parental model or as a relationship model. There are sometimes, you know, when you love somebody so much, you love somebody so much. Even when they don't deserve it, you don't want them to suffer. Halavai that our government had that, you know, that everybody had that feeling about a certain level of suffering that they the government will absolutely not allow. I'm not sure what that level would be, given that so many thousands of people now are still still uh, uninsured and so many thousands of people are, are starving in our country, which is Unbelievable. Think about the fact that in the richest country in all of history, there there are children that go to bed hungry. It's just unbelievable. And they still, and they cut snap this year, which is, I mean, so, like, there's not an awakening from above. That's the argument between, like, radical right-wing Republicans, essentially, which is, ain't no way we're giving anybody a free ride. There's no awakening from from above in this country um, because the people who are awakened on behalf of whom we are awakening will take advantage of the brain. That's all they do, and they'll create videos and send them to the Daily News, who of course will publish it, because the Daily News will always publish anything you send them, and it'll just be of people stuffing containers with food that they send to the Dominican Republic and so on, (laughs) which is of course ridiculous and whatever. But um, awakening from above politics would be, if if extreme, without any demand would be a kind of social welfare state that would be that there's no need for you to do anything because daddy and mommy are always going to bail you out. And that, of course, is a very dangerous model. Right? But this model in the Kabbalah is that as a young child, every young child lives with an awakening from above. No child ever, ever, um, right, should have to, to, um, to validate their need for uh, parental love or for parental guidance or assistance, right? No two-year-old ever was given a test before they were given their dinner. Hopefully not. I mean, or maybe too many are. But they shouldn't be, right? That's a kind of a clear... Right? Right? So there's... The awakening from above model is a very beautiful um, way of thinking about the energy of Nissan. Now, contrast that, awakening from above model, what's called an awakening from above to, the, to a half a year later, at the other equinox. Right, you, you arrive at the end, seven months into the year, right? And seven months into the year, and you arrive at Rosh Hashanah, and it's exactly the opposite. Like, the entire period of Rosh Hashanah has, is, has nothing to do with grace. It's all about uh, my, uh, my hard work. I'm not going to show up on Rosh Hashanah and just say, God, hey, dude, like, you know me, I know you. We got, like, a deal. I'm your, you're my father, my mother, and I your son, daughter, and that's it. No, because I have to actually, I have to do the work. I have to do what's called an awakening from below. awakening from below is I have to go call the 1,500 people, Congregants that I insulted, or uh, or the other synagogues that I insulted, or some other you know I have to call people and and make amends and fix things that are broken. There's a shvira, there's a brokenness, so I have to go do the work. That's what Rosh Hashanah and Kippur is all about, right? That's what we say at the end of the the well known prayer about who by fire and who by water. We say uchuvot fila for you know repentance, <clears throat> prayer and and charity, which means human agency, me, I, I have to do the work, right? If God does if I don't do it, nobody's going to do it, right? <clears throat> now, some of you might be thinking, but wait a second, Ingber. I know that's the way you think of it, you guys go, Ingber. Ingber. <laughs> but there are images on Rosh Hashanah of the parents, right? Aren't there images of Avinu, Malkeinu, um... Right, Avinu Malkenu. There is the loving parent images. So, (coughs) this is for all those in here who are parents. (laughs) You know, you know that as soon as your kid comes and says they're sorry, like you can be angrier than. There can be so much karmic residue, and your kid comes and you're thinking, you know, that's it, that's the last straw, that's it. And they come in and they poke their head and they say, and they start crying and I'm sorry, and then you know, like you're done. It's like your whole plans—they're they're done. They're over. It's like you had the whole thing. You had he's going to step on this, and I'm going to this trap, and then it's going to—you know—it's going to be tied up, and then I'm going to put him away. Doesn't work. So, as soon as they say they're sorry, it's gehendic, It's over, right? Then it's all of a sudden avino avino, and they start crying, and you're done, right? <clears throat> so it's the awakening from below. Then has a. A causative relationship with the awakening from above. And so, and you see that also, by the way, in, in the Passover story, back six months earlier now to the Passover story where the energy is above to below. You know that in the story, if you read the story well, the first three chapters of the book of Exodus, that we don't really see God moving on behalf of the Israelites until they start catching a little bit. Right? They start catching a little bit, not a lot. They just say, ouch. That's all they say, ouch. And that is what sets the whole thing in motion. <clears throat> it's not an awakening from below. It's just an opening that allows, in a sense, God to be present. So, if we take this a little bit out of the theological place, slightly. It's hard, not, it's hard to, but it's not, not so hard. Passover is a holiday of making an opening for grace to happen. That's what Passover is. And, and if you look at the entire Chag, if you look at the Chag, it, it gets its name from that place. Like, in order for the Israelites to be redeemed, after they begin and say, ouch, they have to take an action. And they take an action by taking the animal, they take the lamb and so on, they slaughter it. But in some sense it's essentially they agree to participate in their own liberation. Because even if God wants even if God wants to liberate us, He can't do it against our will. Even if, God, even if God wants to liberate us, we can't we can't be redeemed against our will. So we have to be willing to be redeemed. That's Pesach. We have to be willing to allow there to be something miraculous. We have to we have to identify our resistance to the miraculous. That's another way to say it. Like, what in me... What in me won't allow the miraculous... And even if the miraculous, by the way, is not supernatural. By the way, I, when I say miracle, I don't necessarily mean supernatural miracle. I don't mean necessarily, like, uh, as Gemara says, turning you know, vinegar into oil. I'm not talking... It doesn't have to be. You can believe in the supernatural. That's fine. I'm, 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 I'm on, on board with that. But I'm also on board with, like, resistance to the miraculous in whatever way you... what you mean by miraculous. And part of part of the holiday of Passover is to say that we... The first step, and maybe the most important step in reducing our resistance to God... Is simplifying our lives. That's the first step. Is that the natural human tendency is to make life more and more complex as we become further and further away from God's presence. And at Pesach we take a stop and we and we slow down. And slowing down is is everything. So you think that Pesach is about speeding up? Why do you think that?
2: Because there's so much work
0: because of, the matzah. So much work <laughs> because of the, the matzah. The matzah. What about the matzah? You're
1: running very you fast, so fast you you make in that time to make it.
0: Right. right, right. We didn't have time. We didn't have time to rise. So we were running out. In what, the Hebrew word for this, everybody, is called chipazon. Can you all say that? is not a great word. <clears throat> don't use it in modern Hebrew, in Israel.
2: <clears throat>
0: it's a biblical word, and it's almost never used in in modern Israeli culture. Bechipazon, and it's the word used in the Bible to the, to describe the state of consciousness of the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt. They were bechipazon, like this, like you know, like a lot of us are about like now, because I'm traveling to Israel tomorrow, 7 o'clock, so I'm sure tonight at about 11, my wife and I will both be pechipazon. <laughs>
2: we'll
0: be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we waited till now to, to pack. What's going on? I, didn't, I can't believe that doesn't fit in there. I thought it was going to fit in there.
1: Is
0: that like shpilkis? Maybe. It's, it's cognitive shpilkis. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a subsidiary state. It's there, but it it definitely has an anxious vibe, right? (laughs) Chippazon. So they were rushing out. They were terrified. But ironically, even though the original Passover had that element within it, future Passovers don't have anything actually fast about it at all. In fact, you can't get through the dinner quickly enough. Like, it's just, you're you're so, people are going so slowly. In fact, there's a big mitzvah, we'll get to this in a minute, to take your time to tell the story when do we eat it was you know it's probably a biblical term like, it, like, I mean I grew up with my, my papa Joe and you know my mother's side of the family didn't speak didn't have a word of Hebrew or any Jewish background my mother's mother had a lot of yiddish and Jewish background but not her father And that whole side of the family just had no idea what was going on. It was like a spectator sport. (laughs) So my father, I come from a very, you know, very religious home. And so my father, uh, you know, you had to finish everything on your Haggadah plate. Like, you had to finish everything. Like, there wasn't one exegetical moment where the rabbis (laughs) twisted a word this way. We had to sing, and we sang it. We didn't just read it. We sang it only in Hebrew. So my, my uh, uh, Uncle George and my Papa Joe, my grandfather, both were uh, hard of hearing. Uh, I mean, towards the latter part of you know, their lives. And you could pretty much time it. Like at about 8.30, we'd, like, we'd finished the four questions, and my grandmother, my, my Nana Ellie, would start telling Joe to be quiet, because he was talking out loud, saying, what are they doing, you know? Like, and he was yelling it. He was yelling, because he's, he's hard of hearing. So, at, at some point, they usually adjourned to some part of the house to watch TV, like, you know. And, and so it was a very weird house, because, like, we were sitting with... My father had his uh, kit on, and, and it was very stark, meaning, like, very strong, very religious. And the boys, my brother and I, were both, like, you know, sitting there like good boys, reading. And, and, uh, and then, my, all of a sudden, like, my Papa Joe and my and, uh, Uncle Georgie would get up, and they would leave. <coughs> and we didn't see them again for, like, 45 minutes. Until the food, and, until the food. <laughs> and then somebody came to get them, and then, and then we would all say, "Oh, do we have to eat? Come on!" Like you know, the kids, we the kids wanted to like to get into it some more, and they would, no, we have to eat, so we would stop and come back, and then they would go home, and then we'd spend the next three hours with the Sabre. <laughs> that was it. Okay. So, <clears throat> so there's nothing on the Passover night that's slow. You Not know, fast. fast rather. It's all slow. It's a slow. A, in, and in fact, there's even a story in the ta- in the Agadah that many of you either read or gloss over about these five rabbis who were sitting at a place called Bene Brak and they were sitting the entire night talking about the Haggadah until one of their students had to come and say, It's time to go say Kriyat Shema. That's the story where they... Right, it's, a, it's a beautiful story, like, it, and, and nobody really understands what it's doing in like does. It has to do with some seditious moment where they're plotting against the Roman Empire. They were pro- you know, there's a lot of different interpretations. Why these five rabbis? What were they talking about? But you get the idea. It's, it's a long night. So there's something about um, slowing down. There's something about the way matzah makes you slow down. I'm serious. The way that you chew it... One of the reasons given for the matzah's name as poor man's bread is that it actually fills you up because you chew it so, you have to chew each piece with such awareness that it actually fills you much quicker than bread does. And a poor man who didn't have a lot to eat would actually take a little piece, bite it, eat it, take his time eating it, and then put the rest away. So there's something about chewing on things slowly. Each word, each sentence, each uh, moment in the Haggadah is a moment for reducing our resistance to the miraculous, and the most important way to do that is to slow down. Slow down. Every Jewish month has a four-letter name of God that is associated with the month. There are um, there are twelve ways to permute four letters. Well, three letters that are... Anyway, four letters. Yud-Heh-Vav-Heh is, is a four-letter name of God. And it's on Nisan that the four-letter name of God is actually arranged, Yud-Heh-Vav-Heh. According to the Kabbalah. It's alluded to in the verse, Yismichu HaShamayim V'tagel Aretz. The first four letters, Yismichu Yud Hashemayim Heh V'tagel Vav Ha Ha'aretz. So there's something very beautiful... About the the arrangement of the divine name um, on in Nissan and on Pesach, that has to do with um, things being aligned the right way. We'll stop there for that. Any questions? That was like a Kabbalah moment. Anybody? The word Pesach, pe samiches, pe samach chet. Yeah, Pe Pesach. Pe Sach. The Ari Isaac Lurie said the word Pesach, which is the word used for what? What does Pesach mean? It's translated as
2: Passover.
0: Passover. Why? What does What does Passover mean? Why Passover? What passed over? What's passed over? Pass over what? The
2: angel passed over the house. Right.
0: So so the so the passing over of the homes that that had been. That have that, that have that mark. So it really means to jump, over, to skip, skip. So so many beautiful things about skipping.
2: Hmm.
0: And Pesach is a holiday of dancing. the The dance of God to jump over the homes is as if to say that all faith invi- involves a leap. All faith involves, to some degree, um, a, a willingness to suspend what you don't know. That's what jumping is. When you, when you leap, anybody ever, anybody ever do um, tarot? Listen carefully, okay? I said
2: tarot.
0: Anybody ever, any tarot cards? So in the major arcana, the fool, obviously. (coughs) So what number is the fool?
1: Zero.
0: Fool is is before numbers. So the fool is on the level of ayin. The fool is on the level of of keter, of ayin. The fool in the posture of the fool in, in that picture. Anybody, what's what's unique about the fool's feet? He has he has, he has little wings, yeah. They're little his booties have, yeah. He's got one foot on the ground and one foot off the ground,
2: right?
0: Right. right?
1: Into
0: the, the posture of 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 the fool is the posture of Pesach, of jumping, of skipping of leaping into the unknown, of throwing blood on a doorpost and not knowing what will be. Right? It is... Every dance is an act of faith. To have one foot suspended in midair and the other one... I mean, even better if they're both off the ground. Right? Because who who knows if you're going to land? It's an incredibly... Yes. (laughs) Yes.
1: Exclamation
0: <laughs> point! Max, I don't even need to like make the jokes. I can just like. Leave it. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, Max knows all of my. <laughs> so kafitzah to jump <clears throat> is 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 to defy gravity. It's to defy, it's to defy a law. Every jump is an, a moment of antinomianism. It's like it's breaking the law. Right? Every every time I jump, I break the law. I push up against what's pulling down. I say... Um, I, 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 "I, It's a radical break with the ground. And then we give in again. Of course, gravity will pull us down. That's an... It, there's an inevitability to that, but it's, there's something profoundly um, uh, um, faith that requires tremendous faith when we jump. And so, to believe in jumps is to believe, to some degree, in the miraculous. Right? To be a jumper is to believe in to be a is to be a Pesach. Like that's what God said. God said, "Listen, even if you don't deserve it." I'm jumping over the normal way of things. And if you, ju- if you believe too much in jumping, right, then you're not walking in the world. You're skipping steps. You skipped. you got to go back. But all of evolution happened with skips. <clears throat> Biological evolution. We don't, we don't know every... There's, there isn't an explanation for every, every mutation, every moment. There had to be creative skips. And our lives also are full of skips. Right? There are moments when we... where we say, I'm taking a chance. It's not supposed to work this way, but I'm taking a chance. I don't understand why I'm starting this business. My gut's telling me to do it. I don't know why I should trust you. I just met you, but I do. I don't know why, but my gut tells me it's true, it's right. That's an awakening from above. That's a that's a jumping. That's a see. That's a poseach. Right. I'm jumping over. So that's one, two. That in the Song of Songs. The way of. of um, you know, we read the Song of Songs, it's a tradition to read the Song of Songs on on Pesach night. After the people go to bed, Hasidim and Kabbalists will stay up and read eight chapters of the most erotic love poetry in the Bible. Not that there's a lot of erotic love poetry in the Bible. In fact, it's the only erotic love poetry in the Bible. But it's eight chapters worth of erotic love poetry. Because, you know... I married a couple yesterday, uh, Sunday, and they're young kids, 27 and 25. They've been, they <laughs> met four years ago, and two years ago, they, got, they were engaged, a long engagement, kids these days. And <laughs> um, I asked them to write for me, and I said, please write some words about each other that I'm going to share with everyone. Because they were shy, they didn't want to really talk about themselves. They said, "Would you mind if I talk about you?" And said, "No, we just don't want to." So they wrote like a very—they wrote a page each, and um, and both of them said in it, um, Rabbi, we decided when we started to write it that we were going to give you the abridged version because <laughs> we were a little bit embarrassed because there was too much to say, so we just had one page. So I read it, and in both of them. They both said, at the end of the page, they said, "I love you more than words." And and these words are just, um, just what came to mind. But the way that I love you is beyond any any words. They both said that. And when I was with them under the chuppah, I really felt that. And. It became clear that, um, like, there's a kind of jumping over that in, that means not just that I skip steps, but that I already know the end in the beginning, and I don't, I can't articulate all of the in-between pieces. There's a way that when I look at you, I see the beginning and the end all in once, in one Chochma kind of vision. And if I were to try to give you the A B C D, you know. It's. It would ruin it. Can't get. I can't. I try. I put into vessels, but, and then I put them in, and I see that they're silly. You know, like they their, fingers pointing to the moon, but they're not the thing. So another meaning of this thing, this holiday, is that it's a holiday of love. And that love always involves. In a deep, in a deep way, the ability to hold many things. You know larger container than the individual small containers. That love, like Carl Jung said this about a mother's love, he compared it to the moonlight. He said, the moonlight of the mother is such that that she holds in a hazy blue light all of the differences in the family without there being in conflict. It's like her light can hold all of that it's not the blaring light of the sun that distinguishes and differentiates. And there's something about the love that jumps, that, that encapsulates, that is the love also of, of Pesach. Is that. I see all of you. Okay, time out. Questions? Comments?
1: Uh, uh, Pesach. Hey. I'm
0: getting there. I'm getting there.
1: Pesach, to talk, to converse. Have
0: any connection? I'm getting there. Yes. Yeah. The answer is yes. I'm getting there. Anybody, Other? any other question? S- different question? Okay. So, next. The word pesach, not just as a jumping over, but pesach as um, the mouth that speaks. Pah, this is a playful. Misreading of the word, or I would say it's an oral a u r a l construction of the word. The word is pesameches. It means to jump over, to pass over. The Paschal lamb is the lamb that was used as a sign, right? Pesach it refers specifically to the Paschal lamb. The 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 and the it was so called because it it was the cause for the passing over. But in the 16th century, the Ari said the word Pesach can be read as peh, mouth. Sach, that speaks. Sicha means to speak. Speaking mouth. It's a Native American name. Pesach. <laughs> mouth that speaks. Speaking mouth. Okay? So everybody, the word agada means to tell a story. That's what we're telling. It's such, a, it's such an unfortunate thing, by the way, that what, in, in so many ways I think that what, what happened with Maxwell House. Like, Haggadah should, it should be an evening of telling a story in a creative way about, about liberation, about something. It's actually a very unique Jewish story that has very uh, universal application. Right? Every single one of us knows a story about uh, some exodus and some liberation story. And it almost always has to do with the, the story itself as part of the liberation, like telling the story that is the story is the performative act that free human beings engage in when, they, when they're free and they look back and they tell the story. Like, every one of us has a satyr whenever we talk about an illness in the family, or a death in the family, or how we grew up, or how we left the Bronx, or how we left, the, you know, Brooklyn, or Israel. I mean, we all have a story. We all tell a story. It has a middle, a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has a, a narrative arc. Those of us who tell the story professionally, like me, uh, learn to tell it, you know, in different ways, in different contexts. But all of us tell the stories differently to our friends and to our family. We all tell stories. And the quintessential, the quintessential Passover moment after the after the Exodus, right? After this, the, the uh, killing of the uh, the uh, ritual slaughter of that animal is to tell the story. The Torah itself tells us to tell the story. The God the Yom right? You have to tell the story. What becomes known as Sipur Yitziat Mitzvahim, the story Sipur S I P P U R Sipur. Exodus of Egypt. The story of telling the Exodus. So there are more Haggadot than there are of any other book of Jewish literature. What's uh, More interpretations, more commentaries, more uh, uh, editions. Every year there are 20 or 30 new ones, right? And so on. You have ones for... You have american ones, that, and you have uh, African-American ones. You have ones that are feminist. you have ones that are Israeli. You have ones that are Ashkenazi, Sephardi, Hasidic, Lithuanian. You have artistic ones, you have virtual ones. You have ones that you make them on your own. You can do it yourself. You can you have all of these agadot. Like, and they all have one, they are all a kiyum, a, a fulfillment of the mitzvah, to tell the story. And how few people tell the story with all of these stories. That's the, uh, the great irony of Passover we sit at the table and we have somebody else, we read somebody else's words about a story instead of telling the story. Like, what was what was it like? Let's go look it up. Let's play it out. So who's going to play Pharaoh? Who's going to play... And so I'm sure some of you have creative satyrs, I'm sure. But it's super vital. It's super important. And the, the, the point of Pesach is that the rabbis understood that... Stories and the way that we tell stories, or another way of saying that, is history. History is um, is not an objective, empirical fact waiting for all of us to discover, but an interpretive art form. And the we can say without any doubt that that the Bible gave bequeathed to the West what we now consider to be historical consciousness. That is a uniquely Jewish gift. And we realized that when we told the story, we could actually change the story in the way that we told it. And if we changed the way that we told the story, we could also change our experience of what we went through. That the simple act of retelling a story is not just a retelling of facts like you're in a courtroom. That we are co-constructors of the very stories that we relay. And that's Pesach. It's the mouth that speaks. And remember I said that Nisan is the Rosh Hashanah for kings? Remember that? Limlachim. And remember I said that this, the Malchut has a specific connotation for all of us here as Kabbalists? It's the, high, it's the Rosh Hashanah for kings, but for Kabbalists it means for kingship <laughs> itself. In Kabbalah, the quality of, that is associated with speech is Malchut and the feet. Remember, it's the lowest part in the Sfirot. It's the keter, arms, torso, malchut is the feet, but it's also speech because speech is the way that manifestation happens in, in the creation story. God speaks and God's kingship is manifest through God's speech, speech act. So God's speech is, is, is as it were, God's feet. In other words, the, the final act of production is called malchut, and so, malchut, kingship, in Kabbalah, means to bring something from nothing to something, from, from, act, from potential to the actual. And speech is the quintessential creative act in Judaism, tantamount to walking your talk, literally. In Judaism, it's talk your walk and walk your talk, because talking is real in Judaism. It's not just walk your talk, but talk at your walk. And on Pesach... It is, of course, the month that is associated with kingship and kings because we all speak. And we speak the world into being through stories, through affirmations, through through that creative act. So the Haggadah is the ultimate expression. Uh, it, is, it is a Bible of sorts. You know, the Bible says that God spoke and the world came into being. But in the Haggadah we'd say... We speak, and the Exodus comes into being. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it begins with questions. That's the the Hagada has to start with questions. It has to start with um, using speech to un to un know certainties. All right, let's take a big, deep breath, everybody. All right. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I gotta move. I gotta move. Uh, It's already seven fifty-eight. Yes, go ahead. I'm I'm kidding because it was supposed to go slow. Slow.
1: (laughs) I'm gonna say something that may be blasphemous, but how do we know the original story? You know, you tell a story, then you tell a story about the story. How do you know that going all the way back? How do you know the original story is the truth, or that is the myth?
0: That's that's exactly the point. We don't care. Um, It doesn't matter. You just tell the story. It doesn't really matter if it was true or not. In fact, the rabbis didn't care if it was true. Like the rabbis in the Haggadah are going to say that there were 250 plagues. Remember that part of it? Because yeah. there are 10 plagues. But then it says that, right, it says God's outstretched arm, and there are, um, there are f- five fingers, and each finger was 10 plagues. I forget how it goes. Right, something like that. I don't remember the exegesis. 250. You, now, do you, do you think that the rabbis really thought that 250 plagues? Maybe. Maybe they did. Or maybe they're trying to point out something about Midrash, which is that it, it's, it's not about... Midrash is not history in the way that we try to imagine history. It's a much, it's a, a much larger endeavor. That's why the Haggadah is so, it is so invested in the rabbinic way of learning. Like, the Haggadah is, is, the Haggadah is almost, it's competing almost, right? It's the second century, competing with Christianity. It's competing with a certain way of of looking at the world um, that would denude it of this kind of, this Midrashic, uh, interpretive lens. The, the rabbis were one. The rabbis want you to do midrash. So we'll stop there. You don't have to do midrash. You can have a Buddhist seder if you want. But I'm just saying the rabbis wanted it to be midrashic.
1: When you say midrashic, or when you say creative Passover, do you mean that we tell our own story, or just this story? When you say creative,
0: well, both. I'm going to get to that in a second. Okay. So it isn't. I think a Seder that doesn't have a historical kernel to it, meaning my people are the people that came out of Egypt. That's like bare-bones bare level. That's like the, the that's, that's entry level. And then there's also, this story has been a formative story for all of Western culture. So as a Christian, this is a story that speaks to me also. As a, as a you know, as an American, it's part of my own ethos. Um, I think there are there are stories within stories within stories, and it would be nice to be able to tell each of the stories. But of course, Alina's is alluding to another piece that we have to discover now, which is. <laughs> In every generation, it is incumbent upon us to see ourselves as if we, as if we left Egypt ourselves. So that's the imperative of making the the Passover Seder personal. Right? If you just leave it at well it's a group of a band of there might or might not have been a band of of slaves called Ibrus or Ibirus and they lived in, in you know in the in the third reign third, you know of of king whatever it it won't it won't it won't be personal enough so of course every Seder should have an element of of Asking personal questions, and not too personal problems, depending, you, know, you have to know your audience, but making it personal. Like, you could ask simple things like, since last e- year, have you been, what was your Egypt since last year? And, and what was it that got you out? It could be simple things like, um, um, <clears throat> you know that the sky's the limit with these things. You know, it can be simple. It can be simple um, <coughs> examples of um, who's your Pharaoh, right? Who's your Pharaoh? Who's who's Moses for to you? How did you get to Egypt in this particular iteration, right? You know, there's so many beautiful midrashim about how how the Israelites were completely comfortable before they became slaves. It's like a classic story of like. It happened unconsciously, right? So you can ask you can ask guests to say, you know, are there places in your life where you feel yourself sliding into an Egypt, like that, where you, you need to wake up, or um, what are the conditions of your slavery? Are you know, some people are, are slaves in in comfort. How okay. is comfort a kind of slavery? There's so many ways. I mean, it obviously, again, once you start to use the form of the story. Talk about social issues, and talk about race issues, and talk about existential issues. I mean, there's no end, because this is a universal story of of forgetfulness, slavery, and then remembrance. And it is perfect for for those who are involved. There's a course in miracles, Haggadah. There's also a Buddhist Haggadah. There's all it's, it, it all lends itself to that. That's the beauty of this universal meal.
2: Scott. Were, uh, Andrew, Andrew
1: Gaines had an interesting insight. He said, imagine yourself an inanimate object from the story mm-hmm. and tell the story from the point of view of the inanimate object. Yeah. Take the, the mm-hmm. out.
0: take out. Yeah. Take, take, imagine yourself during the story from an inanimate object's perspective. Mm-hmm. Like a stone being picked up by, 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 by a slave. Or so on.
1: It's also is psychological, so... Of course. So, the, um, so all mythology is metaphor,
2: right? So the, the coming
1: out of slavery doesn't have to be uh, territorial.
0: Of course, right. that's what I'm saying. So yeah. existential, it can be psychological, spiritual. On whatever level, right, there are many, many levels
2: mm-hmm.
0: for all of these symbols. There are many, many levels. So the Pesach sacrifice is a symbol. It's, now, I just want to move now from Pesach to Matzah to Maror and then some other little things, okay? So the Pesach sacrifice itself, which they'll raise, you know, the shank bone. We've talked about this. This is on the... On the, on the national level, you guys can work with it. It's whatever, whatever it needs to be sacrificed in order for us to be free. What needs to be lifted up and may be made visible, but but also needs to be let go of. What can't come with us? Right, what what are we not going to take? We're not taking the lamb. And more deeply, it's also something that we're afraid of. We talk about this every year. The Paschal Lamb represents something that we're afraid of. It's the God of Egypt. So you ain't getting out of Egypt if you're not going if you can't look at the God of Egypt and slaughter it. That's just the fact. And nobody's going to do it with it. You know, you have to do it yourself. And it also represents um, <clears throat> it also represents God's outstretched arms or raats, like the outstretched the possibility of liberation. But the Buddha would say like, the, the, that cessation of suffering is possible. Vasco offering is the faith that, that yeah you deserve to be, to be redeemed the matzah... <clears throat> so how do you
1: build a vessel for liberation
0: how does one build it okay. how does how does one build a vessel yeah. for liberation mm. it, it, it's a very good question but it depends on it depends it depends where you are, what your circumstances
1: because are. Because my favorite, one of my favorite, in the is uh, in Tiruna, the the Make me a sanctuary, and I will dwell in them. not among them; it's in them. is in, right? So that is so that sanctuary is in each one of us. How, how do we build that sanctuary? So how do we build that vessel so that we can become liberated?
0: Well, the first thing is you have to believe that, that you can build a vessel. The second thing is that when you build a vessel, um, it almost always has to do with a sense that um, of being of preparing ourselves to receive something and to hold it.
2: Preparing ourselves. It, preparing
0: ourselves to receive something and to hold it. And psychologically, it means that preparing ourselves with a sufficient level of of inner fortitude that we deserve. And by that, I don't mean the ego. I mean that I'm not going to spit out what's being poured into me. So in other words, I can hold this. I, I deserve this. This is, this. this is something that... Um,
1: I' made
0: in your image.: I mean, it's, it, it comes down to fear almost always. The, the, the vessel has to be, it has to be clear of fear, to clear fear. When there's fear, mm-hmm. then whatever when, when we receive some goodness or some, something alive and something that is, that, is, that is full of light, when there's fear there, we push it away. <coughs> fear acts as an antibody. So the kind of inner cleansing to receive light has to do with noticing constriction and contractions that has to do with fear and what the fear is related to That's usually where it is Almost all vessel construction has to do with building using love to weave light And when love is present then fear is diminished Right when love is Fully present, then fear is diminished. So you build vessels with love, and then you hold the vessels with fear.
1: Can you hold the vessel.
0: <clears throat> Meaning with, with a with a kind of um, not not fear that pushes away, but a kind of a structure, a sense of, of inner, inter- inner integrity. That's called year. That's the good year. Mm. So matzah is, is a good segue because matzah is matzah is the, is the most important of the vessels for the for the chag. Matzah is the most important vessel. To be like matzah. To become matzah. <laughs> so matzah is simple, unadorned. It's only it's only flour and water. It requires a minimum amount of time, eighteen minutes, let's say, for it to to become matzah. It um, it's in Taoism. There's something called the seventy percent rule. Anybody ever hear that
2: mm-hmm.
0: in American Taoism? Mm-hmm. Find whatever hundred percent is and go and and then back off to seventy, and that's the that's the place you should work in. <laughs> if it's a stretch, if it's Whatever it is, the 70% rule. So matzah basically stops at 18 minutes and says, I'm not really interested in being bread.
2: <laughs>
0: I could go a couple more minutes, you know. I become bread, but not interested. I'm going to be matzah. I'm going to be simple. Matzah is um, called in, in, the, uh, in the Zohar, the bread of faith. It's michla it's dehem the is the faith bread, because it requires again, it required. Um, it's a little bit that goes a long way. It didn't need additives. It feels it feels enough. It's dainu. It's the bread of dainu. It's enough. Doesn't need honey. Doesn't have sugar. It's just, it's just, I mean, it didn't need chocolate until people came and started putting chocolate on it. Matzah's amazing. How many people like matzah? I love seeing people love matzah. Matzah gets such a bad rap. It's, not, it's like it's constipated, you're stuck, and you get too much of it. A little matzah with cream cheese, and then you're heaven. A little bit of butter, a little bit of matzo brai. Right? It wakes matzo brai. Ah, Alright, here's the question though. Matzo Briars. Sweeter sweeter salty. Salty. Salty, yeah. Huh? Who's the sweets? Sweet Judy. Scott. Deborah. Nice. Wait, have it a scrambled or a pancake? Ah, yeah, bubble matzo, matzo pancakes are called bubbluch. In my house, at least. Bubba, Bubba. Yeah. yeah. What 18. M- 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 t- <laughs> 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 <Maybe>. Sorry. <laughs>
2: exactly. Huh?
0: Apparently. So matzah, so matzah is, with, notwithstanding all of these amazing things that matzah can be used for, including some other less uh, glorious things like doorstops and things like that, <laughs> um, matzah is, matzah is beautiful. It really is. Matzah is, Um, it's also called the healing bread, the bread of healing. The bread of healing. Because, um, essentially, matzah is both present as poor person's bread and rich man's bread. It represents poor bread because, I said before, it's poor itself because it doesn't have anything added to it. It's simple, it's unadorned. In Kabbalah, it becomes the egoless individual. The one who doesn't have to puff themselves up like bread to be seen, to be noticed, to be where they are in the world. It's just me. Just bread and water. Just flour and water. A little bit of time. It's the wealthy man's bread because it's the bread that we ate <clears throat> when we were free. It's not just the bread that we ate when we were slaves. It's the bread when we're eating when we're free. When we take our time eating it. So matzah is... Um, is the is the is basically the heart of the child. It's the transparent heart of the child before it grows up. It's it's what you were before it, you were told who to be. <laughs> that's what Ma says. And that's why at the Seder, the most important moment everybody, and this, this you should tell all of your guests and, say, and you can say it in my name, you can say it in the name of the Kabbalah, it doesn't matter, but tell, let them know that the, the fifth stage, so it's Kadesh, Urchatz, Karbas, um, the fourth stage, Yachatz, when we break the matzah, that breaking of the matzah is the most important moment in the, in the Seder. You can't tell the story unless you tell it over a broken matzah, That's the, the Talmud teaches mm-hmm. that. The, the, like, so we wash our hands, Kadesh. Uh, make a, uh, I'm sorry, Kadesh is we make Kiddush that's the first stage mm-hmm. then Urchats we wash our hands without a blessing mm-hmm. then Karpas we eat uh, parsley or a potato or some vegetable that grows from the ground and then before we get to the Ma'an the four questions we take the tray of, uh, with the matzahs on it which is all Kabbalistic by the way all ten of the Tzvi Rot are on the tray mm-hmm. the three matzahs represent the three mind states Choch, Mabina and Das and we take the middle matzah and we, we, we cut it in uh, not in half. The bigger piece is hidden and the smaller piece stays for hamotzi. And so that breaking of the matzah, the Gemara says, you can't begin to tell the story, whatever the story is, your psychological story, your existential story, your natural story, your Jewish story, your Christian story, your Buddhist story, whatever story of liberation you're going to tell has to be said over broken bread, broken matzah. And the simplest reason for that is you can't begin to tell the story until you at least acknowledge that your heart was broken.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You can't begin to tell a story of brokenness without first saying, we were broken. You can't tell a story of degradation in the illusion of dignity. Right? So it's like we had to admit, it's the first step, we had to admit that we were powerless. That's the first step. We have to break the matzah. I like to think that the breaking the matzah is actually where the words come from. I sometimes tell the people that the words were inside the matzah and now they're going to come out. Yeah? And of course you all know, as students, of, of, as students already in this, you know, um, that the, the broken matzah should immediately, whenever you hear broken anything, you should think of what? The broken tablets. Tablets. tablets, very good. What vessels. else? Broken
2: vessels.
0: Vessels. vessels. It's a broken vessel. This is the this is the, the ultimate, Lurianic myth. The world is a, we're about to tell a, a, a creation story, a creation of a people. So we first say the vessels were broken first. We broke the vessels. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, and now it's broken. And then we are we are fixing the matzah with our story. That's what we're doing. We're fixing the matzah with our story. A story that, that mends broken matzah, that mends broken wholeness. So that would look like so many things if we were to really take it seriously. Like, in, in theory, here's an idea, and I was just thinking about, like, what would it be like if you brought to your Seder three social ills, Three social... I mean, of a thousand. Mm-hmm. Three. And you laid them down, and when you broke the matzah, you said, in addition to these, this broken matzah, here's the broken matzah that we live with every day. Right? And then if you wove... Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because you gave the
1: awakening from below. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> and then during the Seder, you actually gave some suggestions... For a new narrative, what would it look like if, you know, and you actually wove a story. And let's say you wanted it not to be too politically charged. Let's say you chose something that everybody could get on board with so that everybody at your table, like, agreed. And you agreed that it, it could be really a dream. You didn't have to restrict yourself to being realistic. Let's say, you wanted, I want a dream. What would it be like if X, Y, and Z? This is how we got there. This is how the world got where it is this way, and here's the way we could reconstruct it maybe. So by the time you eat the dinner and or eat the you know get the matzah back, you have uh, some healing ideas and you leave inspired. You don't just leave like with a good exit story or a good like uh, kvetch, which is also something. So I want to say that the that you should all when you say that the achatz, the fourth stage, is the most important stage, also make sure to mention that of course the, the custom has arisen amongst uh, our people that who finds the matzah? Children.
1: Children. Children. Children.
0: Of course. Do I have to say anything else after that? I say that every year. That's the most beautiful thing in the world, right? That, that adults, we, we're too busy telling the story and the kids are the ones who find the afikoman. And that's the way it always is. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean? If you don't have kids at the table, just imagine that you're the kids. Um,
1: so the last thing, So you ask which adult is the
0: youngest. you I like that. Which adult can, can 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 bend down to reach it from the floor? We're getting we're lowering the bar,
2: the uh?
0: Right. That's true. That's true. So where are we now? So we're up to maror. Maror. So most in most communities maror is is romaine lettuce. That's the that's the that's the um, the Mishnah says that's the desired maror is is romaine lettuce. In my house growing up, we always used horseradish and a big root and we shaved it and we had little pieces. But that was more because my dad liked to cry like that, like that. He loved the, you know, this is like his favorite moment in the in Seder. I also love it because he wanted to cry, he wanted to cry. So, but the reason romaine lettuce is used is because it's sweet when you bite into it and then gets bitter in the aftertaste. That's Purportedly, that's the reason. And that's the way of the slavery of the, of the Israelites, that it was very sweet in the beginning. They were royalty. People will often talk about Germany in this way, but how it was for Jews in Germany, how they didn't see it coming, although they, they did, or should have, they did. So there's something about um, sweet-bitter, not bittersweet, but sweet bitter sweet, but sweet-bitter. If you read... Um, <clears throat> If you read Buddhist accounts of suffering, or or the arising of suffering, or the construction of suffering, the way that we uh, create suffering, and if you also go back, hearken back to Greek notions of uh, of desire, of eros, one thing is clear: is that there's a, a very deep connection between eros and uh, desire and suffering, and it usually has uh, the it, it follows sweet bitter. That there is, um, there is, embedded within every sweet bitter, there is the production of suffering. Because sweet is what satisfies, and bitter is what makes us want more. So sweet is what satisfies desire, or ends desire, and bitter is what um, reclaims desire, or reignites desire. In other words, we have desire filled, and then it's lacking. Without lack, desire would no longer be. And so desire needs lack, or it needs remainder in every experience, in order for it to be perpetuated. And so suffering has at its root... A positive that becomes a negative that then becomes a positive that becomes a negative in an unending cycle of fulfillment and and lack fulfillment and lack and so maror doesn't just represent the national suffering of a given people historically or geographically it represents the condition of all slaves to form and matter which all of us are and um, it, it it represents a description of reality, of the of 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 what it is to be a slave, and that all of us are slaves. We are all to some degree or another slaves. Even if we're free, we're slaves. That's why the Torah says there's no the truest free person is someone who is involved in learning Torah another way of saying that is spiritual practices are liberating so that you can be a, a slave and be free and you can be free and still be a slave so Mara is teaching us all of these things that we were once slaves that we are sometimes still slaves that it's bitter and, and so on roar. okay that was fun um It's like a light show, something. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, what what else? Who wants who wants to ask a question? Because it's it's already late. It's eight twenty-five. Who wants any questions?
1: Well, I have a question. First, you said we weren't deserving, and then it was like we are deserving. When did I say we 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 were deserving? That God just came from above and gave us this. We weren't really deserving. Exactly.
0: That's the, that's the Kabbalistic idea. And when did I say we were deserving? Later
1: you said, we deserve to be free. We deserve, somewhere along recently, you said, you know...
0: I said that we opened up an opening okay. by putting the, the blood on the doorposts. Right. Okay.
1: Well, why weren't we deserving? We not? Because we,
0: these... Well, I, I, I also said that in the beginning, that um, <clears throat> I don't know why they created that construction. Okay. I, I, I mean, that would be a much broader... Okay. Conversation. I, I'm not saying that I, I'm not saying this is the way it was.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm saying this is the way that they're telling this spiritual truth, which is that grace is possible, mm-hmm. and they're using the Passover narrative and story and reading into it, in order to produce this truth, which is Passover is the holiday of awakening from above, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur awakening from below, and those are two truths that that live within the Jewish spiritual landscape, and. You know we could speculate why why they claimed the Israelites were not worthy it could be a way of actually getting around God's uh, uh, culpability for not having saved them they were they were 400 years enslaved and what was God waiting for mm-hmm. so one way of, of avoiding that would be to blame the victims
2: <laughs>
0: it could be that they had another tradition that said that they that the Israelites you know, there are later traditions that say that the Israelites were were even worse idolaters than the Egyptians were.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Assimilation. Yeah, I I mean, it's, it's, again, it could be used by every generation to use it in their own way. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to say that we weren't deserving, but Mm -hmm. Pesach is the archetype of when we're not deserving and we get it anyway. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. And you can think about that. I mean, like just to be a, to be to be born in the United States is like, what did I do to deserve to be born in the United States? I could have been born in Bang, you know, in, in, in Bangladesh or in some other part of the world where, who knows? I mean, not, nothing wrong with Bangladesh. I'm saying I I could have been born in 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 so many ways, in so many, and I was born a you know a nice, up, you know, upper middle class white guy, and and I'm so lucky. And
2: medicine is-
0: and medicine is available and I have food on the table and all of my I have we all have SARS. but wow 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 and of all places in the United States to be I mean I'm thank God on the East Coast <laughs> <laughs> <Not in Texas>.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <coughs>
0: thank God yeah questions comments I in any part of Passover, do you guys want me to talk about quickly? Mm-hmm. Think, say, think of something. Come heroset. on. You have me. Heroset, David. Charoses. Yeah. You say, Charoses. <laughs> is it, it, it represents the bricks. It's made in so many different ways, with the seven different species of, of that are indigenous to the land of Israel. It's made with Sephardi, re- Ashkena. I mean, there's, you name it, everybody has their own Charoses recipe. In Kabbalah, it represents the ultimate chesed. Loving kindness, and it's placed on the maror in a process called the sweetening of judgments. The sweetening of judgments, adinim. that the maror represents. Like I once did, a, I once did a zen, I did a zen seder, zeder, I guess I don't know, <laughs> 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 even, Zeneder, I don't know, and it's uh, they were on a week long sashim, they were on a week long. A silent retreat in uh, Brooklyn, the Fire Lotus Temple, and my friend uh, Sam Finesmith and I did a seder, and so they were really in it. Like for them, like they were, it was a a ritual meal, like in a way that I would dream of doing when I don't, have, you know, when the kids are grown up and and when it's not two hundred people who agree to do a silent seder would be amazing. It would be amazing, you You know. Yeah. right so <clears throat> so that the, the the silent Seder would be that silence may be for the ritualized moments, and that when we do actually do the story, we do it in a way like we would figure out a way there would be singing it could be like a silent Seder with with ritualized storytelling you know which was inviting people to go inside to find various places, and we, you know, had 12 different moments of the, seder, of the of the Exodus narrative, and each person is invited to meditate on it. But when they ate the, the, the maror, like, they were thinking of not just their own suffering, and not just the suffering of the Jews, but of all sentient beings. And when they dipped into the charoset, they were imagining all of suffering, all of it. You know, every child, every tear, every moment being sweetened by this this elixir, this tartar, this pirosa. And in that it becomes a kind of communion. Right? It is it is a kind of taking in communion <clears throat> and imagining these symbols. And you're ingesting the symbol and you're and you're trying to effectuate, not just in your own consciousness, but in consciousness in general. The, the greatest imaginable healing for the planet a nice thing to think about it. Mm-hmm. instead of just like wow good walnuts you know yeah.
1: <laughs> Arthur Waska said like <clears throat> song of songs
0: yes <clears throat> yes that's Arthur's thing that's he and he's right yes. he's right alright anything else a comment okay Brian
2: where do you start so the it's interesting I mean as an architect when you build something you start with the outside and then you get to the inside later the Mishkan was first and then everything else I'm sorry, came
1: after am sorry I'm hard of hearing I can't hear
2: you okay you, the, when the Mishkan was built okay that's what was the starting point was the center not the outside that came much later and in architecture you build the outside first and then you do the inside so you have to
0: start in the center. Right. Jessica Kate Meyer gave a beautiful directory about that a couple of months ago, about starting from the inside first. You build building community from the inside out, <coughs> building vessel from the inside out. No. <coughs> so um, the Regina Rebbe, one of the one of the great Rebis. <coughs> Next, um, I guess, when's Pesach. Next Monday night. So next Sunday night. Next Sunday night is is uh, is the. It's the custom to look for chametz in your house using a candle and a feather and a spoon.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: People know this. No. It's called yeah. the yeah. Yeah. Chametz, the search for chametz. You can find a kit. They have these. They sell the little kits in the the West Side Judaica. It's like for a buck fifty or something, two bucks.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <clears throat> Essentially. The custom was to take uh, 10 pieces of bread or 10 pieces of chametz, leaven products, could be a bagel, could be Entimen's cookies, it could be whatever, and uh, and put them into, uh, into a Ziploc bag or into tin foil and to place them strategically around the house and then to go and use a candle. Candle because candles could get into places that, uh, in that day, before the advent of iPhone flashlight and so on. You uh, a candle will uh, can get into the little nooks and crannies in a way that um, you know you couldn't do it by the light of day. It's better to do it at night in the darkness. You use a candle, but it's also because a candle is, is usually used as a metaphor for the soul, and so the candle both represents literally using a candle, but figuratively also to check for chametz using our soul. And so, uh, you know, <clears throat> so it's customary to put out ten little pieces of something, one for each sphere, And uh, my wife and I and others I know have a custom also of writing on a piece of paper ten different things that we want, would like to burn <clears throat> from our lives. And we put them in together with, with, in the tin foil. And then um, we go around the house and we, um, we stop and we remember where we put them, and we stop and we say a little prayer before each one. And we scoop them up. And then the next morning we burn them. And uh, all over the Upper West Side, you'll find, in various synagogues, you'll find uh Chesed, I'm sure we'll have on the street. Literally on the street, there'll be like the cops will, will cord off an area, and you can burn your chametz. <clears throat> You'll, on here on 91st Street at the Young Israel, it'll be the whole morning on Monday morning. There'll be a lot of chametz burning. <clears throat> it's a it's a thing to burn the chametz. You're not to burn all of your chametz; just those ten little things. Um, if you can't burn them, you can flush them down the toilet, right? Or you can throw them in the garbage. Um, there's something about fire, though, that's that's a very important transformative element and, and alchemical process. There's one the Hasidic Rebbe on the night when he was doing what's called the Bidikas Chomets, when he had finally scooped up the last piece of chametz, he turned to his sexton and he said uh, he said, do you think we're finished? And he said, yeah, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rebbe, we're, we're finished. And he said, no, we're not. And he said to him, bring the candle close. And he opened up his shirt and he said, now look in here, look inside my heart. So that's really the process, right? That's the process of, of looking inside of an inner cleanse. Right, not just the outside. Which is why Romamu is not having any email, because email is a modern equivalent of something that you that gets stuck in it, it's like everywhere and you can't get rid of it. Mm-hmm. So email no email at Romul for eight days. And I'm gonna be off email also, I'll be in Israel, I'll be in the land of Israel. But I wanna bless all of you with um, as they say, Azizin. Which means a joyous, a zisan and a kosher beisef should be a kosher Passover and joyous. You know, there are three. There are three kinds of vessels in in. Uh,
2: <coughs>
0: there's earthenware. Bless you. Bless you. There's metal and there's glass, right? So, in earthenware, when something that's earthenware gets is. Uh, is not kosher for Passover, there's nothing you can do about it. Right? You can't, you can't kosher earthenware. It absorbs everything in such a way that the only way to... You know, the only thing you can do with it is you break it. You have to break it. It's like, you know, if you eat not kosher, you have, a, you have a milk... You have a milk bowl and you put chicken soup in, which happened to us last week when I was sick. You can't do anything. It was boiling hot soup and it was... It, that's the way it goes. So we had to throw it... We had to break it. Then there's metal, right? And how do you, get, how do you cash kosher metal? Anybody know? Right, so there's a, the halacha says that the way that it came in is the way that it goes out. Right? So if, if it's burned in, if you use fire, libun, you have to use fire to get it out. If you use boiling... And then there's glass. Which glass is? Doesn't absorb anything. doesn't absorb anything. So the law with, with, with glass is that you just have to wash it and it's good. So there are a lot, you know, every person is like a little bit like these three categories. The Rebbe say. I didn't say this. The Rebbe say this. Like some of us, <clears throat> some of us, we get to a place in our lives where we've absorbed so much schmutz that there's no recourse for us except to, to break it. Like me, I'm so schmutzy this year. And this week I got so, I, I broke, my whole system broke down. I got so sick. So then got it's broken. Now I've got I to I gotta go fix it. And a lot of us are not there. A lot of us are in a place where, you know, we absorb it, but we're still there. We can get it burned out. <clears throat> we can purge it. And what we want to be is we want to be in a place where we're glass. We're so transparent that we'd be kosher all the time we wouldn't need to have such extreme measures in our lives in order to find balancing. So God should bless each and every one of you with being able to, to find a way to be simple the next uh, when Pesach comes, and that in addition to the great satyrs you go to and the great teachings you hear and the great food that you eat, that you also have a moment where you feel grace, you feel blessed. And that you're able to ask the right questions that will be the questions that will remind you of a story that, that's your story. That's a story that's your particular unique story that no one else can tell. And that at least at one moment <clears throat> you feel somebody was able to hear your story so that you could have a taste of liberation. I wish that for all of you. Amen. 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 So, got you. Amen. so let's rise. Yes, you're called to Deborah. Mm-hmm.